0: Welcome everyone, my name is Dan Brown. I'm an energy and infrastructure partner at Ashurst, and I'm helping our clients reach their net zero ambitions. This is the latest in our series of podcasts on the topic of renewable energy disputes. It's a series in which we hope to elicit from our market leading renewable energy disputes lawyers, the lessons they have learned from acting in renewable energy disputes, and their tips and tricks for avoiding and managing those disputes. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Michael Weatherly, and he's a disputes partner in our Singapore office, and also with Tamam Kaisi, a senior associate in our Dubai disputes team. Now, we're going to be addressing the questions of which dispute re- resolution mechanisms are best suited to resolve disputes in our renewable energy sector. Michael and Tamam, welcome. Thank you, Dan.
1: Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be
0: here. Now, Michael, let's start with you. Why disputes? Why did you want to become a disputes lawyer?
1: (laughs) I think I like arguing, uh, to be honest. Uh, And that's certainly what my mum will say Uh, from a young age, (laughs) would always uh, would always uh, take every argument I could. Uh, So I quite enjoy that. And uh, dispute seems a natural fit in that regard.
0: Excellent. So look, let's turn to a question that I guess is on the mind of many of our listeners. Why are we spending a whole podcast talking about what tends to be a pretty vanilla standard form clause in a contract?
1: <laughs> Never one to shy away from the tough questions. I suspect uh, you, like uh, many that have been in this game for a while, know exactly why, Dan, which is that without an effective dispute resolution clause, really the, the rest of your agreement could potentially end up being pointless. The dispute resolution clause is what allows you to ultimately enforce those other rights that, that you and, and your teams fought so hard for in negotiations. You know, so assuming you're an offshore wind farm owner, for example, you bargained really hard for, for this availability guarantee regime in the, the O&M agreement for the turbines. The contractor who's often also the original turbine supplier, they've failed to meet the promised level of average availability. And now you want your liquidated damages. The contractor says, no, that's absolutely outrageous. There was a permitted downtime event. That excuses me, I don't have to pay. Well, what do you do? Well, you might try and resolve things commercially, but if you can't do so, you need to invoke the dispute resolution clause. To, to get paid and so if that clause is defective in some way and i've seen many that are what next and, and the answer sadly and, and uh, something i've lived through many times i'm living through it right now is that you'll probably spend probably a year or more essentially fighting about how and where your dispute should be resolved not actually moving any closer to getting paid the amounts you're owed
0: Michael, as a front-end lawyer, I, I won't take it personally um, that you think that we'll need to renegotiate the clauses that my team and I draft, but <laughs> absolutely can can appreciate the importance of of those provisions. And you're right, they're sometimes not uh, focused on as much as they should be, at least in my experience. And so, Kamam, jumping to you for a moment, like, how did you end up in Dubai?
2: So, basically, I, I spent the last Ten years working on energy disputes in Paris, and I uh, was really focused uh, on energy disputes in, in the Middle East and it just felt more natural to be to be closer to clients uh, and to mo- move out there where where uh, everything is happening in that in that field I mean that's that's the the official reason but it, it is also true that after ten years in, in very gloomy Paris, I was looking for a bit of sun and, and the sight of the sea. Well, Dubai certainly seems to be the most amazing place for sun and
0: sea. So Tamam, Michael's given us a really good landing on why we're here today. Perhaps you can ease us into the topic by giving us an overview of the main
2: dispute resolution mechanisms you're seeing in the renewable energy space at the moment. Absolutely, thank you, Dan. Uh, so maybe we can start by making an important distinction between, uh, on the one hand, preliminary or interim dispute resolution mechanisms, and on the other hand, final and binding dispute resolution mechanisms. So in terms of preliminary or interim dispute resolution mechanisms, uh, parties often resort to preliminary forms of dispute resolution mechanisms, particularly during the construction phase of major projects, such as uh, renewables, Uh, in order to ensure that the project is progressing smoothly and that the contractor is receiving uh, progress payments, knowing that the parties would be able uh, to have a more thorough fight uh, over this dispute once the construction phase is completed. So just to give you an example, uh, some FIDIC form, contracts feature dispute adjudication boards as a pre-arbitral step. These are usually referred to as DABs. These are systems that allow parties to pay now, fight later, as we refer to them. Uh, so basically, whenever there's a dispute between the parties over an issue during the construction phase uh, of a renewable energy project, the parties may resort to DABs in order to re- receive a relief that is binding but not necessarily final. So if one of the parties is dissatisfied with the DAB decision, as one of the parties often is, it may later resort to arbitration for a final resolution of the dispute. However, uh, in the meantime, I think, and this is what is important about DABs, the the dissatisfied parties uh, would need to comply with the DAB decision and move forward with the project. Now, in terms of a final and binding dispute resolution mechanism, you've really got three main options. I would say that by far and mo- the most commonly used dispute resolution mechanism in major projects such as some of the renewable Energy project is international arbitration, particularly for cross-border disputes in which parties from multiple jurisdictions are involved. I, success- I suspect we'll delve into that a bit later. The second option is national court litigation which is also a feature in this industry, particularly for purely domestic projects. And finally, the third option is expert determination, in which technical experts, rather than arbitrators or judges, issue a final and binding determination on the dispute. But this is limited to disputes of purely technical nature. Okay, so if I've understood correctly, we've got a whole different
0: variety of contractual mechanisms or contractual standards out there. There's many different approaches to resolving disputes, from you know, dispute um, agreement boards to expert determination. And knowing the likely makeup of our listeners today, who will all come from a varied background with varied interests, perhaps we can just focus on some of the key differences between perhaps I guess arbitration and litigation, which I feel are probably the more common approaches to resolving disputes, particularly in the renewable sector.
2: Yes, certainly, Dan. I would say there are four particular differences between the two processes. First is procedural flexibility. Arbitration is really a very consensual process. The parties have great control over the arbitral rules they would like to apply to their disputes. Importantly, the parties have great control over the selection of the decision maker, meaning the arbitrator. Uh, They typically select arbitrators whom they trust and whom they believe have the required expertise in the subject matter of their dispute. This is unfortunately something that is not available in court litigation. Also court litigation procedures are often determined by legislation and can be uh, very rigid in comparison to arbitration. The second difference is finality. Litigation usually allows numerous levels of appeals whereas arbitration does not, and the arbitral award is final and binding, except in limited circumstances where it can be annulled. The third difference is time and cost. Given the numerous levels of appeals before state court, litigation can often be lengthier and more onerous than arbitration, but this really varies from one jurisdiction to another. That said, unfortunately, arbitration does not enjoy a reputation of being either cheap or fast. Now, the most important difference I would say is uh, the global enforceability of arbitral awards uh, pursuant to what is known the New York, as the New York Convention. The New York Convention has 168 state signatories and allows parties to enforce their awards globally, with only very few limited exceptions. Now this international enforceability is very attractive to parties in cross-border disputes and particularly in the renewable energy uh, space given the potential involvement of several parties from multiple jurisdictions and the likely need to seek enforcement of decisions uh, in foreign countries. Now, in contrast, there are some limited international agreements relating to the enforcement of foreign court decisions but nothing of the scale of the New York Convention.
0: So Michael, Kamam has
2: just helpfully highlighted some
0: of the really appealing features of international arbitration. Although I know that he left out international travel, five-star hotels in Dubai and Paris, and those (laughs) sorts of things that are, you know, in my mind, yes, all right, the the perks associated with um, resolving something through international arbitration, which I'm sure clearly overstated. But it it seems to me that one of the really particularly appealing elements to international arbitration is really about this cross-border enforceability of awards. What are the other perceived benefits um, of arbitration particularly as it relates to renewable energy disputes?
1: Yeah, I mean, global enforceability of awards is is the big one. But related to that is the fact that international arbitration really allows parties to choose a neutral place and procedural law. And so where you've got parties from different jurisdictions, as is often the case in renewable energy projects, this avoids the need to to submit to the jurisdiction of the courts of the home state of the other party. So no party has this home grant advantage that you might hear about. And particularly that's of great value in the projects that are located in emerging and developing countries. And in those countries, there there might be a perceived risk that litigation before uh, the local courts could be very time-consuming. Potentially, there might also be issues of bias or corruption in favor of the local counterparty who may very well be state-owned or, or state-controlled. So there's there's that benefit. Um, I think the other two points I'd make are around confidentiality and expertise of decision-makers. Uh, as to confidentiality, uh, it, it does change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but as a general rule, Uh, litigation favours public, open justice. Arbitration, on the other hand, or at least commercial arbitration, uh, typically takes place as an entirely private and confidential process. And when you're operating in an industry with new and emerging proprietary technologies, as you are in the, the renewable energy space, confidentiality really does matter. You don't want your competitors' having insights into the operation of those technologies and frankly you also don't want your customers knowing that i don't know maybe they're subject to alleged defects the confidentiality of arbitration allows you to avoid those issues the final point i think is to pick up on something that Tamam's already mentioned which is the ability in arbitration to choose your decision maker most renewable energy disputes that i see are highly technical They're often driven by factors that are quite unique to the renewable energy industry. And in that context, you want a process where the person deciding on your claims or defenses understands how that industry works. They they understand how the technology works, they understand uh, what the commercial drivers are. In an arbitration, you can pick that person, Uh, whether they're a lawyer. Uh, doing mainly renewable energy work such as yourself or or an industry expert, um, you, you do have that flexibility.
0: Yeah, that, that seems to be a really important point, uh, doesn't it? That given the pace of change of the technology involved in our energy transition, it's really important that the person that is ultimately arbitrating on the issues understands the technology. Yeah. And, and look, I'm also mindful that we don't want to be blindly promoting arbitration in all circumstances. When, when should we not use arbitration? When is it not the best option?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing for an international arbitration <laughs> lawyer to admit when arbitration is not appropriate, but uh, it's an important, important point to make. Essentially, uh, in purely domestic disputes, especially where you can get quick, efficient, inexpensive justice, um, from the local courts. But that, of course depends on where you are in the world, um, and it changes jurisdiction to jurisdiction. The confidentiality of arbitration is also not for everyone, so some of our government clients in particular uh, are sometimes unwilling to enter into arbitration agreements because government transparency, government accountability is seen as being more important, particularly in relation to what is a politically charged industry such as renewable energy they prefer the public open justice of domestic courts in that context
0: yeah that's a that's a really important consideration i guess i hadn't totally appreciated until now which is one of the options around arbitration which makes it so attractive is the confidential nature but actually it's not one size fits all for all parties
2: yeah
1: i think that's right yeah
0: and so to mum what about adopting different methods for different types of disputes Tell us more about, say for instance, expert determination for technical disputes and arbitration for others. I mean, is that, is that a good approach or is that an approach that people take in the renewable sector?
2: Sure, so I mean, this is certainly a feature I have seen in, in, in contracts um, in the renewable energy uh, space. And on their faith, I think these clauses represent a sensible commercial approach to dispute resolution because they ensure uh, diff- that different types of disputes are sent to the most appropriate uh, decision maker. However, there are potential problems with these uh, split clauses. Uh, so for example, I mean, there's a significant uncertainty uh, and scope for argument as to what exactly constitute a dispute of a technical nature. So what is meant by technical? So the question is whether this clause covers only purely technical disputes or does it extend to dispute that involve uh, you know, mix, mixed questions of law, facts, and technical issues? I mean, in, in practice, disputes are rarely contained to only one issue or one clause of an agreement. It's often uh, very difficult to define with pre- precision which parts of the disputes fall within which mechanism. So for for this reason, I would say that such clauses often provoke time-consuming and costly uh, jurisdictional battles as to where a particular dispute should be heard, distracting really the parties from uh, actually resolving the dispute uh, itself. This is a, a matter that Michael touched upon a, b- a bit earlier. We often, us dispute lawyers, see ourselves battling jurisdictional issues for month and month uh, or a year before actually delving into the, the, the merits of the dispute. Importantly also, these split clauses may also result in some issues being determined by one decision maker and other related issues being determined by a different decision maker. And this often results in inefficiency and potentially inconsistent decisions. I mean, this is not all to say that you should not have expert determination at all in your contracts. It clearly has its uses, but I think one should carefully think about where and when these mechanisms uh, must be used and uh, also have uh, experienced dispute resolution uh, lawyers having a look at the clauses to to advise on the best uh, mechanism to be adopted.
0: So it sounds like to me, the the more I'm listening to all of the various different issues and iterations of circumstances that could potentially arise in the actual implementation of these renewable projects. And to me, it seems more and more that One size, I know I've said it before, but one size doesn't fit all, that we really need to examine um, not just the parties to the particular contract, but a whole lot of other considerations a lot more closely in terms of making sure that the documentation is fit for purpose in a broader sense. But Michael, I guess one of the things that I'm also really keen to understand from you is what about the concepts of tiered dispute resolution arrangements, for instance, starting with amicable discussions between the parties, now, if that fails then moving on to arbitration or something like arbitration, um, is that a worthwhile approach? I, I know we see it often in documents that we we work with um, or receive from counterparties, but you know, is that something that we can entertain?
1: Yeah, I mean, it probably comes back to your point about um, it's not a one size fits all approach and it's very common. Um, but there are very different views on whether it's a good idea. Um, it is one of those issues that I find polarizes uh, disputes lawyers in particular. You know, those who are in favor of that kind of clause, they point to the benefits of uh, you know, maintaining relationships, giving the parties a chance, a formalized chance to talk it out, to essentially avoid what can be an expensive litigation or arbitration process. And of course, I see the value in that, um, but... In my experience, it has caused more problems than it's worth. If parties want to settle, then they are going to settle and and they don't need a clause to tell them to do it. But if they have no incentive to settle, if one party is just trying to avoid their liability or perhaps they're just not ready to settle yet, they don't have enough information, then these kind of tiered provisions really just cause delay And they increase the scope for for two different problems. One's a limitation problem. If you're up against a limitation period, potentially these kind of clauses are going to prevent timely commencement of your action. But more commonly, they also give rise to jurisdictional or admissibility objections. If a party wants to cause havoc in an arbitration context, for example, they can easily use these tiered provisions to do that. And, and it's a, a tried and tested argument that I've seen many, many times. Essentially, it's it's three things. They say, well, these negotiations are mandatory; they're a precondition to starting arbitration. Then they'll say, ah, oh, but they weren't carried out strictly in accordance with the clause for whatever reason, you know, or the meeting didn't happen within the specific time frame that was listed, for example. And then they say, because of that defect, the tribunal, well, you don't have jurisdiction now you've got to dismiss this case and on one of our cases at the moment we've been dealing with an objection just like that for over a year now it doesn't have merit in this particular instance but it's easy to allege and ultimately it takes time and money to deal with it and sadly for for the parties uh in the meantime the underlying dispute is is no closer to being resolved (laughs) So. My personal experience is that it's probably not worth it.
0: Yeah, I really love um, something you said then, which is if you're incentivized to resolve the dispute or you're minded to resolve the dispute, you're going to do that anyway, regardless of whether the contract expressly says that you have to sit down and have good faith negotiations um, or have to resolve it at your you know, executive team level or whatever else. But the converse is actually true, which is, if you're not minded to resolve it, if you want to drag things out, if strategically that is the best outcome for you, then you'll look for a way to exploit that mechanism that says, hey, we need to talk to each other first. Um, I think that's a really, really important piece um, around those tiered arrangements. So as you all know, and as our listeners will know, um, it's a bit of a tradition on our series to wrap up the podcast with um, our best renewable energy dispute war story um, from your practices. So what have you got for me? mum, share something, preferably not from my front-end documents that i prepared.
2: <laughs> no, sure. So in, in a recent dispute relating to the construction of a, of a solar park, uh, we're working with a technical expert on a question relating to the park specifications. The expert we were working with knew his field extremely well, but did not have any experience producing expert reports uh, in the context of international arbitration uh, proceedings uh, or testifying before arbitral tribunals. Now, this meant that the expert did not fully understand the level of scrutiny his report would go through and therefore the amount of work he was required to put in Uh, in order to produce a robustly substantiated report. We are used to working with uh, experts like these, and and we work closely with this expert, you know, challenging his testimony over and over in the hope that he would be able to produce a more robust report. Uh, However, the problem is that the report was not evolving at the anticipated pace. and Before it was too late, we had to fire that expert and fall back on a, on a second expert. Uh, now, the second expert proved to be a much more effective uh, expert and was able to produce a robust report in time. But we had to go through a lot of pressure and stress to make that happen. I guess that the moral of the story is that while expertise in the field, you know, such as in the renewable energy sector, uh, is mandatory, it is also important for expert to have uh, experience producing uh, litigation, arbitration style, expert reports, or at least to be properly briefed on what is uh, expected from them. But thanks to mum, that, that
0: sounds like a, it was a really frustrating process where um, you're dealing with an expert that that effectively can't be expert at what they're doing. It kind of reminds me a little bit of that, um, that showbiz saying where they say you shouldn't work with animals and children. Um, it's making sure you get the right expert on a, on a range of things, right? The, not just their intellectual you know, intellectual know-how, intellectual <laughs> but also about their ability to deliver a report that can clearly um, articulate um, their expertise uh, as it is applied to the facts in the, in the relevant situation. Uh, absolutely. Michael, what about you, mate?
1: Yeah, it's uh, thinking back over the cases and, and picking one's always hard. Um... <laughs> But I, I think uh, for me, it's probably a recent uh, SISC arbitration that we had. in relation to a consortium agreement for a, a, for the construction of a geothermal power plant. One of the most interesting things about it was this fascinating clash of cultural styles and and how that contributed to the breakdown of the relationship. But kind of the the, the underlying facts involved a quite a brazen attempt by one of the consortium members to try and essentially engineer an exit from the project. Um, the project had become financially uh, disadvantageous to it and they they wanted out. And how they did that was start sending increasingly baseless variation claims for our client, who was the consortium leader, to, to then pass on to the employer. And our client was understandably unwilling to, to make uh, baseless claims against uh, the employer, including because they didn't want to destroy the relationship. But the other side used that unwillingness uh, as grounds for terminating this consortium agreement. They filed their their, uh, termination notice, walked off the job and left our client uh, holding the baby as it were. Our client still had to complete the construction, but thankfully we had an arbitration clause that was fit for purpose. So we were able to relatively quickly and effectively bring a claim for wrongful repudiation and to seek reimbursement of the quite significant additional cost to complete that project. We won, of course. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'd be telling you this story if we hadn't. But the counterparty was, was left with an 80 million US dollar award against it, which when I reflect on it, was, was a, a very expensive way for them to learn uh, what were some pretty basic lessons about the law of
0: termination. That's a really interesting war story, at least from my perspective, because you touch on one of the things that inherently will run through, I believe, most arbitrations, which is the cultural aspect. Because, you know, the arbitration by its very nature, ultimately, in many cases, is international or has links to international counterparties. And so really diving into that cultural counterparty piece in order to drive a dispute mechanism that is culturally sensitive and appropriate, um, is really important if everybody's ultimately wanting to row the boat in the same direction of resolving something in, in, in a way that's culturally appropriate and sensitive. And so I actually hadn't thought about that as, as a relevant consideration, notwithstanding all the work we do across borders and jurisdictions. But that's, yeah, that's really important, Michael. Yeah. Well, look, thank you very much, Michael, and Samam, for your time today. I found this really fascinating an um, in, in, in insight into the important elements of dispute resolution clauses, particularly at international arbitration. If any of the listeners have any further queries or they'd like to connect with us to better understand any elements of the discussion today, please feel free to reach out to us on ashurst.com. Now, the next exciting instalment of our podcast series dives a little bit more deeply into the most preferred dispute resolution mechanism, um, which is arbitration. And it asks how one goes about appointing And educating your arbitral tribunal. And look, I'm sure there's many relevant and important considerations around that seemingly innocuous uh, appointment process. So to ensure that you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even your favourite podcast platform. And while you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation alive and leave us a rating. Um, what you think of us in our podcast is really important to ensure that we can deliver you content that's relevant and valuable and hopefully really engaging. Thank you so much for dedicating your time to listen to us today. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
2: If you enjoy
0: Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda
2: and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.